and you get into a Viper, and oh my God, you're just <laughs> King Kong. I did my first BFM set offensive at McDill and Block 30. I actually had food poisoning from the night before, but oh. I was never going to cancel a, like it's BFM yeah. and a Viper. <laughs> and all I knew, I, w I just raged around the corner, trying not to pass out, just hanging on for dear life. I know I got reversed on by my IP time and again and got my ass kicked, and I just, I was so fast. Like, I'd never been that fast in a fighter. And so when people ask me, I just say the F-16 because there's so much in its development that was yeah. exceptionally well done and its growth pattern. We'll talk about it later when we get to block 60. Altitude. Altitude. Tower to my station is really two, runway four left, zero, four, zero, at five, clear for takeoff. Sea tide, Altera zero eyes, we're clear for takeoff, clear for the airspace. Viper check two. 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 Viper check What's up and thanks for listening to the podcast. That opening clip is from my guest today, Billy Flynn. He's had 40 years flying fast jets. In that clip, he is talking about his favorite fighter as well as his least favorite fighter. That's a Q&A session that's exclusive for Patreon supporters. If you want to check it out, you can swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast or swing over to theafterburnpodcast.com. Again, that's theafterburnpodcast.com. There's links to Patreon as well as the video for multiple episodes and some additional content over there. As always, I'd like to thank my Patreon supporters. They help the podcast grow. And also a thank you to all of you who've taken the time to swing over to iTunes and now Spotify to drop a rating or review. The simple six to nine seconds of doing that, if you're enjoying this content, helps the podcast grow, helps the algorithm show it to more people. So again, you can support the podcast over patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast, or if you just want to take a few seconds of your day, if you're liking this content, leave a rating review over on iTunes and Spotify. With that being said, let's get into the podcast with Billy Flynn. Oh. All right, Billy, we're off to the races. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Um, beforehand, we just did a little quick Q&A session for Patreon listeners, so thanks for taking the time to do that. Again, those are for everyone who's out there supporting the podcast. But, Billy, without being said, let's uh, let's jump into it here. I always like to ask my guests if you kind of give the 60 to 90 second elevator pitch of who you are, what you're doing, what you did, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Rain, thanks for having me. I, I love the show, so uh, I'm, I'm really appreciative that you invited me to be on. It's always fun to listen to your guests, so thanks. 60 seconds, hold me to it. Uh, <laughs> You'll be the first. 23 years, yeah, I know. <laughs> 23 years in the, uh, in the Canadian Air Force. My father was a fighter pilot, flew F-86s all the way to Voodoo's. I grew up in that world, and I guess I always wanted to be a fighter pilot. Uh, the original Canadian nugget in CF-18s. Uh, I finished the Canadian military as the command, a squadron commander of a of an operational squadron, but also the I commanded the wing of uh, Hornets that flew an Allied force out of uh, Aviano in the spring of 1999. In between all that, I did 
uh, the United States Naval Test Pilot School, and I spent five years at Edwards Air Force Base as the exchange pilot who was never coming home. <laughs> uh, I was having so much fun flying Vipers at the F-16 Combined Test Force Test Force as the Canadian Exchange Officer. I flew at NASA Dryden, then now called NASA Armstrong, flew Hornets, and uh, hopefully we're going to talk about thrust vectoring as part of all that. At the end of my career, I was poached and invited to come to fly Eurofighter Typhoon. I moved to Munich, Germany, <laughs> imagine that, uh, <laughs> foothills of the Alps. And I flew Eurofighter at the beginning of its days when it was still a prototype along the way while I was there flying uh, F-4s, which was magical as a former Canadian, <laughs> and Tornado. And then after that, it uh, really when F-35 was won by Lockheed Martin, Lockheed Martin, because I knew them back in my F-16 days, uh, I wanted to come and be part of what was going to be a franchise program. And so in 2003, I left the Eurofighter program, moved to Fort Worth, Texas, initially on Block 60, that King Kong Viper of all, all time, uh, the amazing 80 jets that we built for the United Arab Emirates, uh, tested exclusively by Lockheed test pilots with really no military uh, intervention, which was the most amazing four <laughs> or five years of any of our careers. And then I did two years seconded to the Automatic Collision Avoidance team, Technology Team, ACAT, that uh, matured the technology for automatic ground collision avoidance that you see now in the Vipers yeah. that you flew and F-35. There's a long story that goes with that. And then full-time to F-35, posted 10 years at Pax River, predominantly flying Bs and Cs as test guy, but equal time A's through Cs. I've had a a glorious, amazing, blessed career. Uh, I retired a year and a half ago. It, COVID hit and I had been out of the country, out of Canada, my homeland, for more than 20 years. And I could not handle being away from my wife, our four boys, yeah. aging parents any longer. And uh, as much as I loved flying, it's infectious to me. It is my drug of choice. Uh, my family and that priority really was just so much more important than anything I was ever going to do in a jet. I'd flown fighters for 40 years. I was just so blessed um, start to finish. And so it was time to to stop that. And I moved back to Canada. That's incredible. Part-time. I, I, I still live, we still live at Pax River, but uh, my accent is coming back very heavily. These days. <laughs> Once you go north of the wall, I imagine it has to come back a little bit there, right? You know, I tell people, if you don't, uh, down south, you don't understand my move, my accent, go watch the movie Fargo and you'll figure <laughs> it out pretty quickly. Uh, Billy, that's an incredible career. And I mean, obviously you're still going at it. You've flown more fighters than obviously most people. Um, I can only imagine flying some of those jets. It sounds incredible. I do want to talk about a smattering of things today. We'll just see where it goes. But I would like to jump into the F-35 demo. So, the F-35 demo team for the Air Force, it started out as just a heritage flight when I was the F-16 demo pilot. And then my last year and a half, it became a demo. But before that, you were developing the demo profile for the F-35, which then subsequently dojo, the F-35, first F-35 Air Force um, pilot took on the road. And I know he worked a lot developing it with you as he was talking dojo. Ironically, he was one of my first students when I was a FAPE. So it's kind of funny, the connection there, but it was interesting. Cause I know you mentioned you going through developing all of this. I'm curious as to what went into the process when it comes to crunching numbers, developing the profile for an interesting show, because there's a lot of moving pieces. 
talking to the Dutch. Yeah, there really is. It, you know, it's like they used to give these to like aerospace engineer students to validate the profile, et cetera. But I'm kind of curious, what what was that process? And I know that's that's a big, big ball over to you. Well, it, thanks, Wayne, because it's really uh, an important topic. I've been lecturing about it. Really, it's uh, coming up on the fifth anniversary of um, June of 2017, the first demonstration, public demonstration of the F-35, but we didn't just show up and do it. Uh, look, we've been brow beaten badly in the public forums about losing a dogfight to a two-seat, two-tank, 40-year-old F-16 <laughs> at Edwards, and that story just never went away. And and you've heard it, and, and I'm sure you've talked about it. Oh, Everybody yeah. else has talked about it. You know, it really wasn't the dogfight, but it's irrelevant. It became the urban myth, and it really stuck. And it was, it was killing us. And you couldn't get talking about, like, why would you spend billions of dollars on a fifth-generation aircraft when you couldn't even beat a last-generation hogged-up Viper? And there's no conversation because no one would believe sensor <laughs> fusion or stealth or anything magnificent about fifth-gen because we were supposedly so hampered. And so someone you know, uh, general retired Gary North, Nordo, yep. Nordo um, and I at air shows would, you know, just get so badly embarrassed. And <laughs> I think the pinnacle was being at Abbotsford the summer of 2016 when there were three different Hornet shows there. And we had, I think we had something in static display or a couple of guys had flown in and we were just getting killed and we were going to lose competitions. And so the, the task to me was in the, in the secret plan, which was like the poor, worst secret ever in Lockheed history, I was cleared hot to go create the demo. So what we had to beat was we had to tell a story that crushed the dogfight myth. And, and I had to come up with a, a plan to do that. In a, a contractor demo, different than what you flew, we are there very. We are there to demonstrate the highlights of an airplane in very specific profiles. We're really not there to show the public a show. If you want to watch, that's great. But we're we're presenting to politicians, to heads of heads of state, to general officers, to technical experts. To our, by the way, our competition is watching to right. show the best of our airplane. Whether you're a Gripen, a Rough Bow, you're a Super Hornet, you're a Legacy Hornet, you're a Viper. We're going to show you the best of what we have. And in our case. Uh, we had to we had to give them the best we have. We don't have 15 minutes on stage. At Paris, you have six minutes to show your stuff. And I flew at Paris in 1987 as the CF-18 demo guy. And I know, like I knew from my history, the box is tiny, the clock is ticking, the rules are so strict. So you don't have a you don't have a lot of time. You got very little real estate, and you got to show the best you can. And so I, I took this to understand I had to show the highlights of the airplane. And what does the airplane have? It has a 43,000 pound thrust engine, the biggest monster fighter engine of all time. That's Viper power, right. like raw brute power. It has slow speed capability uh, like the legacy Hornet that I did air shows in. So we could do a square loop and it could do a slow speed pass at 35 alpha, totally controllable. And oh, by the way, climb away on just sitting on the afterburner vertical after that and it could sit at high alpha it can sit at 50 alpha yawing at 50 degrees a second which is not a raptor but he's got thrust vectoring and i don't right. and that's kind of raptor like you know forget the russian airplanes so uh, six minutes uh, what did i want to do everybody thought the jet was mediocre and it wasn't until i got into our simulator that i started to realize that there was really something out there about this airplane 
Um, and, and I put together a routine. And, and the routine is, and if you Google F35 Paris, not that I'm advertising, but that's <laughs> where, it, where it was filmed on day one. It's a AB takeoff to a vertical, to right into the vertical, to a reposition to a square loop, to reposition position to that to a 35 alpha pass, just barely walking down the runway, come out of that and burner, climb up and then back into a vertical climb, skid over the top at 50 alpha, spiral down at 50 alpha, doing 50 degrees a second in a pedal turn, stop, fly away, totally under control, and then a level 360 max G turn and, and land all in six minutes. Um, I'll jump ahead and tell you that in a six-minute airshow routine, we crushed more than 10 years of myths and misinformation about the F-35, fed by our competitors, <laughs> right? Fed by our own failure to communicate properly and clearly fed by our adversaries. But so how do we, how do we build it? Because if we crash, if we fail a maneuver, we have cemented in the minds right. of everybody and we would have lost billions of dollars in sales and, and even at home crushed our hopes of turning this into a franchise program. Um, the term I use is ambidextrous thinking. And, and what I mean by that is we built each routine backwards. What I knew is I couldn't afford ever to lose the jet. There, there's, there's no maneuver that can be so daring, so amazing that I put it in a position where something unforeseen happens and I can't recover. And so we built it backwards. And, and, and to do this, uh, we have tools that you didn't have before. We have astonishing commuting, uh, computing power, right? We have a simulator different than what you know, even in the airlines and certainly in the Viper. It, simulators are just that. They simulate the real airplane. But in F-35, the flight control system is, is a model-built system. So we, we build and massage the model, and then we tell the airplane to fly like the model. And after 10 years of flight test, where we've been feeding data back and forth after all these test flights, our model is like flawless which when you put it in the airplane or in the sim, the sim now flies like the real airplane. So we had, we had truth data in the sim. I didn't have to couch anything. I didn't yeah. have to, you know, kind of figure it. It really was the real deal. And, and then we, we realized we had to create fail safe gates. So here's the example I give you. Uh, I, I had a team of every discipline you need. It's flight controls, it's, it's structures like loads, it's engine, obviously, it's electrics. Uh, I don't know, it's cockpit stuff. Is the helmet going to work? You name it, we had an engineering team put together. And then we said, look, give us, give us all the scenarios where we could get ourselves in trouble and give me the performance numbers that allow me to recover. So you know this, but for the listeners, the F-35A is a 9G 50 Alpha airplane. But when the flight controls fail off, it's thinking the Viper when, when we went to um, a backup motor in the Hornet when it defaults out of, out of its cast mode, then you go to a secondary capability. It's a get you home kind of capability. And so you go from in, in an electric jet instantly from 9G 50 alpha to 5G 20 Ooh. alpha. Yeah. If you are banking on, on the fourth corner of a, of a, a square loop, pulling off a 50 alpha recovery and flying away. And all of a sudden, without you knowing, because there's some fault, you have a 20 alpha turn right, turn circle, you're going to mort yourself. Yeah. You're going to scrape off Robin's nests at the top of the trees. <laughs> and so we, we created the numbers and, and we ran a million scenarios 
and combinations of the scenarios. So there is no chance that any combination could ever get us in trouble. And people would say to me, the engineers go, look, that's never going to happen. And it, you know, there's no way those combinations are going to happen. So I flew Eurofighter Typhoon. And in the Eurofighter Typhoon, way back when, the chance of a double engine failure of a Typhoon was 1 times 10 to the minus 19. That's not in a million lifetimes of our grandparents and great-grandparents and, and so on. Like impossible to imagine. And how did we lose our first typhoon? <laughs> double engine flame out of the two-seat Spanish prototype and no, okay. pancaked into the ground in Spain. So when an engineer says to me, that can never, ever happen, my response is, I will never, ever believe you. I don't and believe you. So we you. created uh, the, the Christmas of 2016 into 2017 over Christmas, even after all the sims I'd done hundreds of hours, we ran the simulator by itself and said, look, just do all the failure modes and make sure it can't crash. And so remember that, that example I'm pointing straight down like this. It's really the fourth corner to happen. Well, that number happens to be 2,387 feet is the worst case when, the, when everything fails, you make it out of here and still fly away. And I can't do that math in my helmet pointing at the ground, but I can, I can remember 2,500 feet. Yep. And so all of a sudden I set a number that goes, look, you can never be pointing at the ground less than 2,500 feet. And then I would back it up to the, to the third corner and go, okay, we know how much this is. And oh, by the way, I did all the variations. I said, okay, look, you should be 200 knots, but what if you're 250 or 350? What if you're 150? What if you're heavy on fuel and you got 10,000 pounds of gas, not 6,000 pounds like you think? and all those iterations, and that's how I got to round it out 2,500 feet. And that applies to every single maneuver in the entire routine. And there was, if you understand those numbers, and if you understand the flight controls and all that the academics go into it, you can never, you will never kill yourself in an air show. And you know from all your demo time, you know the history, you know the Viper fatalities stories. Yep. I know the stories in the Hornet world. I know the fatalities. And, and I actually knew a guy named Des Barker, retired South African major general who wrote the defining book on airshow accidents called Zero Margin. He, he, uh, he died, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. And, and he would tell us these stories of, you know, all the airshow guys that were like things went wrong. What's important in this academics and how it was built is I couldn't lose the jet. But, I, but it turned out we had a really spectacular um, uh, show to, to put out there. And, and I've taken that since, and I briefed at ICAST, the International Council of Air Shows. You've been there every year. I briefed twice uh, in the safety day for air crew about this. And we've gone on the road to this. You mentioned Dojo Olson, who flew the first Air Force demo. Like, oh, by the way, great guy, great stick. And he completely bought into understanding the engineering of it all so that he knew every time he flew, he, he just knew the numbers and he knew that as long as he stuck by the numbers, he was never going to get himself in trouble. We, at the same time as we trained Dojo, we trained two of the Marines to how to develop their show, which is a really spectacular CTOL and Stovall combination show. And a good friend of mine, Lieutenant Colonel Champ Gayette, just flew it in Singapore a couple months ago. You can see it yes. on the web and did a stunning stunning performance of the B model in Singapore and just blew the blew everybody away. And we taught the Navy demo guys, the guys who were going to do their show. They never have flown the full demo, but we gave them the academics. And then after Dojo was leaving, 
uh, Beowulf was coming on board. She came in, Dojo as her mentor. I taught the academics. And now Bayo's got her first full season after being <laughs> right. kind of skunked with two aboard season. And Bayo flies an incredible show also. What they possess is an incredible knowledge of the airplane that didn't exist in my Hornet days. You, you couldn't get that in Super Hornet. You certainly never had it in Eurofighter days, or you didn't have the opportunity of that in your Viper experience. But the numbers are flawless. I will tell you two anecdotes. I know why the numbers are flawless. I, I had a, I developed the routine in the sim and I went out my first day to practice. I had a chase Viper with me with two of my co colleagues following me. The jets I was given were out of hill. So I took off out of Fort Worth on the military side. Uh, Lockheed gets a two seat Viper, chases me out. And I start working through the routines, just individual maneuvers, start doing uh, takeoff equivalents and, and slow speed passes and the square loop. And the slow speed pass, my exit was to light, light the AB, never let the nose move. It's an old Hornet thing. Don't show, don't show nose movement and just yep. pull away. And at the top, I was going to do a 50 alpha loop and then fly away, <laughs> which always, always worked for me. And I didn't really think it out. There's lots of things going on. And I'm now, instead of at 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet, I'm at 12,000, 13,000 feet. And I get somewhere up here, AB's cooking, the airspeed looks okay, and I bury the stick to come over the top and I am nowhere near the nose position that I need to get over the top. And the jet parks at right about vertical and I, I'm a Hornet guy, right? I, I know what's about to happen. <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm not flying anymore, bells are going off and I've managed to depart the jet, you know, at 12,000 feet somewhere west of Fort Worth. And I'm just thinking, congratulations, <laughs> your airshow, your airshow career just came to an abrupt end. The jet flies away because it's an F-35 and it'll never stay out of departed. The guys beside me never knew what happened. And, and so I went home with tail between my legs. Actually, I finished the, the practice, by the way. But then I went home and I gave the data to the engineers. And said, so, look, boys, this is really not good. Uh, had a long call with my then fiance, now wife. And she goes, look, you, you're stripping that right out of the airship routine immediately. And then I tell you the story because the next day we went back in the sim and I flew in the same environment and in the sim, the jet departed because the simulator was exactly like the airplane. And that gave me the confidence moving forward to know that I could do everything in the sim and not have to worry that it wasn't quite right. It really was truth data. And that gave me in the 17 flights I had to practice before I went to Paris, the astonishing confidence that we, we completely knew the jet. And now I'll tell you that if you're going to be an F-35 demo guy in Australia, in the Netherlands, in Italy, there is no way on God's green earth that anyone would dare let you go be a demo pilot without coming back to Lockheed Martin and sitting with the engineering team and doing two days of academics and sims so that you completely understand the jet like Dojo knew and Bayo Wolf knows because they're a hundred million dollar one of a kind uh, national assets and you can't afford to mess this up. You know from all your years, it isn't how you fly the jet. There's so many other variables when you're an airshow guy that you cannot control that could right. fuse what otherwise in the sterile world you could figure out. But on day on day game on game day, there's just so much out there. And so the intimate knowledge of the airplane is what's going to keep us from planting a, uh, an F-35. It's awesome to That's have, there. you know, it, well, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot that goes into that and having that resource, that reach back, be able to go there because that is the, one of the questions that 
um, I had, right? The, you know, the Viper demo has been around for quite a long time. And you can be pretty safe if you're in cornering 330 to 440, life is going to be good. But the two maneuvers that I thought were probably the, the most dangerous one, a vertical reposition, so a split S, I think that probably has killed more people than absolutely any, any other maneuver. And then the slow speed, high alpha pass, um, not that that's a very dangerous thing, but the Viper, you know, Viper demo would do it 500 feet, 400 is the men. I think the Thunderbirds do it 300 feet. But if that motor transfers to sec, while you can fly it out and you can fly it out in the sim, that sink right there, um, it, it's got to be on the ragged edge. But I didn't have that data. I, I don't know what that data is to this day as far as are you going to beat the fireball out? Uh, are you going to be able to climb out of it? Is it a hot, you know, flying in Rio Negro yep. when it's hot day, hot, you're high. Yeah. It's, it's just not, it's not in the card. So actually when I did the air show in Rio Negro, July, roughly 8,000 foot field elevation, density altitude, <sighs> like 11,000 feet. I went ahead and added a few extra hundred feet from mom and pop for the high, high alpha, right? Cause no one else knows the difference, but if that motor coughs, that's it. Like giving it back to the taxpayers and that's not a win for anyone. Uh, so having that data is really, is really crucial and being able to, you know, be there at the ground level and dojo having that access to start. I remember he and I would talk about it as we did different shows on the road, a couple of anecdotes with dojo one, the F 35 helmet. Everyone knows how expensive it is. If you don't know dojo, his hair was perfect. Uh, as we'd fly air shows together, I'm over there sweating, humping it, getting the jet started, doing whatever. He's just sitting in the F 35 cause it's doing its magic. But we would land. His hair is perfect. I'm like, is that is that helmet in there? Is it combing? Are you actually working? But it, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was it was impressive to watch him fly that demo. That that jet um, is, is just incredible. So, but if you haven't seen that 35 demo, I highly recommend going out there and doing it. Two questions. Oh, yeah, what you know, I I hadn't seen it, and I watched Dojo the first time, really? and it was just because I'd flown it. Yeah, but I had never sat in the ground. Astonishing. Just astonishing, and he knew how to show the airplane. He, like fabulous. He did ask because I was yeah. there for. He got certified with a demo at Heritage Flight uh, Conference. I guess that would have been 2018, and so I yeah. remember you know standing out there on the flight line watching watching the F-35 demo for the first time. I watched his practice, and then I watched the one with I guess it was General Kelly, which a couple of General Kelly uh, peel offs here, but watching that demo. I mean that jet one the power behind it is yeah. is phenomenal. Uh, it it it's a it's a great demo. It's a great jet. He and I flew several times together, going out doing BFM. Got some good stories with that, and then also he kind of showed me some of the the magic behind the F thirty five and why it's good to have it there. But um, you mentioned you mentioned with a yeah. the Paris Air Show right, going out there and dispelling. You know, a lot of the the misnomers, the misinformation that had been there with F-35. I think Paris, largest air show in the world. It's good to hit on this. I, I kind of alluded to the Rio Negro where I flew that. And at the time, actually, General Kelly was the 12th Air Force commander. And we were flying out of a civilian airport where we had like 30-minute windows. And then they had to let, they stop all the air show, let civilians come in or civilian airliners come in and land for an hour. And then the air show would pick back up. Um, I was queued up. I had 15 minutes before the window ended. The Brazilian demo team took forever. I ended up getting scrubbed. Well, at that time they had the Colombian defense, uh, minister out there, their secretary of the air force, general Kelly was out there as well as a slew, uh, you know, their, their 
their slew of the Air Force because the Colombians were looking to buy a new fighter. But yeah. the Europeans were there. Everyone is out there vying for this competition to get the Colombians to buy their jet. So, you know, obviously Lockheed Martin, the United States Air Force wants the Colombians to have an F-16 kind of alluding to interoperability. And I think it's important to hit on like air shows, right? They're fun trade shows. They're fun, right? But there's a point behind them. And I think that is one of the pieces of the puzzle, you know, and that that's something you can speak to a lot, but the importance of going out there and winning, if you will, out there in the public eye, because it has huge ramifications that it drops a nation out of a program such as Canada hitting the pause button for other reasons. Right. But that's something that I think is sometimes overlooked and it can be because again, it's just jets going out there making a lot of noise, spending a lot of money, but there's a lot more to it. So let me just go back for one anecdote about um, the rationale for learning the academics in 2011, a Boeing, a, a super Hornet in Lemur, California crashed the crew, the demo crew were killed. They were trying to emulate what they'd seen the Boeing Super Hornet demo fly without understanding the academics and how the flight control would work. And they did this barrel roll down low and, and completely misunderstood how the aircraft behaved and both guys died. And the reason we won't, we tr I hope we never let a, uh, an F-35 demo happen without the Lockheed test pilot engineering academics happen is to prevent that. And Boeing has now instituted, I'll say, I'll give some credit to what we did in Lockheed with, with uh, Dojo and Bayo uh, is um, the Boeing guys now are redoing or doing academics with the Navy Super Hornet demo team so that they completely understand the, their jet before they go out and build their demo routine. Um, our presence at air shows, you, you, you hit it on exactly. It's just an air show. There's so much technical data. You know, we have combat experience. Uh, there's there's technical experts out there that should know everything about the jets. And it it comes down to our presence in public because a, a, a prime minister, a president, a, a, a member of parliament, a, a senator doesn't, they're not technical experts, but they have an, an enormous pull. If they can't be convinced by with their own eyes that they watched it, they, they understand what they're talking about. Hey, that makes a lot of noise. Oh my God, that thing is fast. It was stunning to see the Viper do a level 360. Oh my God, you should have seen this guy climb vertically compared to the other airplanes, smoke winders, the right. whole conversation. If they don't get to see that, then you don't put the finishing touches on your billion dollar deals. Okay. And, and it's, it's, it's being the closer. And oh, by the way, if you goon it up, you know, you have a yeah. really bad day, you crash an airplane, <laughs> then you, you can also have, you know, killed, you know, a, a franchise opportunity for your airplane. But as you say, and you understand the pressure as a demo guy, don't you? They are there to watch you. Right. And there's a whole philosophy. You and I could talk for hours about how you behave in the cockpit and the discipline of being a demo guy, but it's not lost on anybody just who's in the audience and, and what it means to put on the professional show that we have trained so hard to, to do. Um, I did a, I did an interview with, uh, Laura Seligan, uh, Seligman. She was a journalist for aviation week and she still covers defense matters. And she knew the F 35 program a lot. I talked to her the Wednesday before the practices started at Paris and I, and she promised to hold the story until the Monday of the Paris air show. And I said, look, I was, I was talking very much not like a humble Canadian, very much 
like an aggressive American. Yeah. Said, I'm going to crush the myths of the F-35 once and for all. So she write down their notes and I get up on Monday morning at the Paris Air Show, like a good Lockheed employee, I grab my iPhone and read the news. And the first thing it says is F-35 pilots going to crush the myths of the F-35. And I thought, oh dear God, if I screw this up today, I will be working at a grocery store, packing <laughs> groceries the rest of my life. Um, because that's the, that's the, the influence you have when you're a yeah. demo guy. And, and you know, again, I'll say it for the third time, the discipline to be that demo person, to never lose your mind, never believe those head, those headlines, just focus on the show is always most important, but you, you're not, it's not lost on you how important your presence is there. Yeah, no doubt. And it's just one of those things again, cause the million things can go wrong. The variables at an air show are, uh, yeah, it's not a sterile environment, even though it's supposed to be a sterile environment. It just gets weird. So, um, it gets weird. Yeah. yeah. yeah and that's and that's not where you want to be when you're doing, you know, 600 knots at 200 feet off the ground, pulling a lot of G's. Cause that's just not going to work out well. I do want to actually, you mentioned, so the, the super Hornet, which is interesting. I have no Hornet experience whatsoever. I've watched the blue angels a bunch. I mentioned, I think the split S is the most dangerous maneuver. I do watch the blues and this is one of those things the the deviance or the, the deviance of normalcy, right? I think it's the right, the, the right term. Um, their loaded roll and takeoff. That makes me cringe every time. Maybe that is something that is completely normal, but I look at your, your max AB, you're slow and you're doing a loaded roll, low to the ground. Do you have an out there? I'll tell you what, the, the Hornet guys, after I was a demo guy, have been doing it legacy Hornets for years and years and years. You are certainly slow speed, and if you failed an engine or something like that, you're, you just killed yourself. And oh, by the way, you don't have an eject, any ejection margin. So I don't know that by the safety criteria that we've been talking about, you would yeah. live through that. Do you have enough power and flight control capability? Absolutely. Uh, but are you living by the safety margins that you and I were just talking about? No. Okay. All right. At least yeah. as I watch it, I was like, man, that just looks, looks sporty. But again, doing a high alpha pass, high density altitude, you know, you're probably, you're probably riding the rocket seat for that. Um, yep. Kind of transition here, tying on that thread, the F-35. So a lot of experience, you, uh, you have a lot of experience across the board flying a lot of planes for many nations that are flying across the globe. Can you kind of talk to me about like, why is the F-35 important why is that next what are some of the benefits we see with f-35 coming out i know you're not a lockheed martin spokesperson but i want to lean on your experience there because i think it is important to pull well i think i want to go then uh, i want to take let's uh, go back to the great interview you did with general kelly and i want to talk about the term that he used we talk about interoperability a lot that's not the term that we really want to apply when we talk about f-35 i think i want to use hit and i will from now on by the way I'll use what he said, and it's interchangeability. Um, and I'm going to go back to my fourth-gen roots. In Central Europe, in USAFE, uh, we learned in the fourth-gen airplanes, Hornets, Vipers, Eagles, how to be interoperable. We did uh, squadron exchanges where we went to Bitburg and f- back in the day and flew with uh, Eagles. We went to Han and flew with Vipers. We went to the Netherlands, flew against F-16s or with them for a week, and then they would come hang out with us. And we learned, we learned how we, j- we, we each flew. We learned the culture of the, of the nations, and we learned how to do exercises together. Okay? And so we were a formidable force, outnumbered back in the day, but we could, 
we could fly together. Uh, we did the tactical leadership program back in my day. I went to it. It was at uh, Jever Air Base, sorry, in northern in northern Germany, but it's moved around Europe. It still exists. You'd show up with 20 different airplanes. Uh, basically, you show up with your wingmen, bring your jet, bring your ground crew, and over the month period, you do progressively difficult, more difficult tasks as air-to-air -air and air-to-ground guys. And ultimately, you, awesome. you were a 20-ship force. Yeah. Okay? And so we learned to be interoperable. TLP was a great example of that. But, and there's a big but, the, the USAF, the USAFI airplanes, we're never like the Dutch airplanes, okay? And you know this, and I know it because I flew Vipers and, and Hornets <laughs> in the States. My Canadian Hornet wasn't a U.S. Navy Hornet. And the Dutch Viper is not an American Viper. And I learned this in combat because I, I lived in Aviano and on a base with CJs, and we flew with Portuguese F-16s. And in our big gorillas, we had Dutchmen and Frenchmen and Brits. We were, we were very effective but there was off, often a US-only package versus our NATO packages. So we, we're, we're interoperable, but we're not one in the same. And we're very effective. Now step into fifth gen, okay? So we've learned to work together. But now we're partner nations. And a, and a Dane is the same as a Dutchman, is the same as a Norwegian, is the same as a UK F-35, is the same as a USAFI-based or a Hill-based F-35. We are one and the same. We have the same airplane. We, oh, by the way, we paid the same amount for them. We have the same capability. We've been briefed to the same level. We all live in the vaults. We all know fifth-gen tactics. And, and we, are, we are pieces of a puzzle. We are on the same net, depending on the formation. Everything we do is a, is a mind lock. And so we're not just the same amount of you know, equivalent vipers going against the bad guys. We're, we're a force multiplier when you put us all together. And that makes us an, an astonishing de deterrent and makes us amazingly lethal now in the fifth gen world. Everybody's been trained at Luke to this point, some point. Right. I mean, there's going to be another base because there's just so many other guys coming. But everybody's been briefed with the same mindset. There's no haves and have nots, which was really the case in fourth gen. We are all the haves. We are interchangeable we lock like pieces of a puzzle and and we will be maybe not omnipotence a little too much but we will be very very powerful moving forward we when you talk about what does that mean so let's jump ahead and remember that in multi-domain operations f-35 is the key enabler of that it's the key enabler that's going to allow us to work with with space assets and, oh, by the way, ships. And, oh, what are we going to do with Wedgetail? What are we going to do with advanced tankers who are uh, communication nodes? Because we are a node of communication now. And, oh, by the way, I don't know, we're going to pick up P8s. We're going to pick shipborne assets and, and so on. And that's what F-35 brings in the, the, the broad topic of interoperability, which I think gets lost on lots of, lots of audiences. And General Kelly, again, gave me the, the best word to steal from this point forward and that's we are interchangeable and that is my distinction from my fourth gen world as a as a hornet baby in canada uh, based in germany back in the day but you know flying with dutch vipers and and u.s vipers and u.s f-15s uh, now we are one and the same and that's remarkable to me look in the arctic so you you take the circle around the arctic let's start in now finland Sweden in between, Norway in the Arctic, 
We get to Iceland where there's now uh, NATO F-35s patrolling up there. Go to Greenland and go up to Thule Air Base and uh, an American Air Base. Go to Canada, thank God, finally. Uh, in the east, a place called Iqaluit, way up north. And on the west uh, is Inuvik, which is a beam of Isleson, which now has 54 jets. And all of a sudden, you've covered the Arctic with F-35s. We're not arrogant enough to, or, or dumb enough to tell anybody you know, the, an F-35 sensor can actually see all the way through the Arctic. Yeah. But the sensor coverage and the network you build, especially in North America with modernization of NORAD, is astonishing when your key node is an F-35. We're not doing what we did in 4chan and just shooting down the arrows, which is we attacked the cruise missiles. We're going to kill the archers. We're going to kill the bombers who now can fly out of rejuvenated Russian bases 365 days of the year, they're capable. We're going to kill the bombers now, not just you know track down the cruise missiles that they fire. To me, interoperability is everything about the progress we've made in F-35 and the future as we talk about multi-domain operations. So let's, let's pull on that thread just a little bit, and I know we won't go too far down the rabbit hole here, but big picture, 50,000 foot view. What, like, why is that need there? We're talking you know, near peer threats. What answer does the F-35 bring to it? I know interchangeable, but like, I guess when it comes down to it, solving complex problems, what is the F-35 solving specifically? Well, remember that when we, so if you're Eastern Europe and right now, we clearly, everybody <laughs> didn't think there was a threat now realizes in the United States, we understand that we're a warring nation. In the UK, they understand that they're a warring nation. In Canada, Canada hasn't <laughs> had a war since the War of 1812, and Canadians still tell themselves they beat you know America away. Um, and Central Europe was cruising along 30 years post-Cold War, and life was going to be peace forever. And my children, my boys, would, were going to grow up in a peaceful world, and that's ended. And we, so, so we have an Eastern threat. We understand in every nation now that there is a peer or near-peer threat. And that we all, by the way, we understand that if you don't have a VLO jet, you're going to die. And you just have to look at the Russian losses in Su-35s to realize your fourth gen asset is not going to survive against the SAM threat that exists, even from the Ukrainians, which are Russian capabilities. Right. We'll <laughs> uh, but we wouldn't march in there right now with a grip in. We wouldn't march in there unless we had a whole lot of assets with, with a fourth gen platform. So that's what F-35 brings. But now you and I, as Americans, let's pivot and look to the West because our real threat, we believe, is Asia Pacific. And uh, J-31 and J-20 may look like our jets, but they're not. They're copied and they have the same geometric shapes, sort of, but they're not the sophistication of, a, of an F-35 that, you know, is manufactured some of it from Skunk Works, which did F-117 and then did F-22 and now F-35. And 40 years later, there's manufacturing techniques that no one's going to copy overnight. However, they're going to beat us in numbers. And quantity has a quality unto itself. And by that, I mean, you throw enough, up a, uh, uh, enough airplanes up against us and we're going to be shooting three to one. Like we're going to be, we got, we have a problem. If we cannot create a, a, a multiplier of our own numbers by being so well integrated that we all think the same, that there's no differences. You're not speaking Spanish when I'm speaking Portuguese because the other guys are speaking Italian because the other guys are speaking 
German or bad Canadian, when we're all speaking the same language, like we do in F-35 land, well, now we're, now we're all together. And now we, we will win. And we will, you can outnumber us, and, and we will beat you. And we'll beat you in a fifth-gen platform environment with the fourth-gen guys behind us doing cleanup. But we'll handle that. If we don't all speak that same language, then we're going to face some, some harsh numbers. And numbers, you know, just the sheer volume will, might beat us. You know, Does having, that answer the question it, about it, why, it, why it, we need to be the same? It, it does. And I think, you know, so the answer you probably agree is there's the, the discussion has been, you know, mix of fourth gen, fifth gen platforms, because as you mentioned, quantity, that's a big problem that you have to solve. Like if they're throwing plane after plane at you and you only have so much. And as we always do, we say we're going to buy X number of jets and we end up buying a mm-hmm. third of those. So ultimately it's probably without a guarantee. We are not going to get the number of F-35s that we, we want. Um, having flown with oh. F-35 tactically though, that thing is a force multiplier because of the data it shares. Having big brother right beside you. And that's, we, you know, right before I became a demo guy, right? So this, my tactics are now well outdated. Um, but we, we changed them up. We would, we would do a two ship of F-16s with an F-35 versus a four ship, which would normally guard X wide, you know, mile lane because of what it brought to the table. And you can't say the same, like the Raptor is amazing, but it didn't share its knowledge at the time. So is that the the solution there, a fourth gen, fifth gen mix, or do you think we'll get enough F-35s? Well, so you bring up the the great point. Uh, There were supposed to be 120 B-2s. We bought 21. Right. Uh, The original number for F-22 was actually 750. Then it got paired to 380 something. And we bought about 189 total. Um, The, program a record for F-35 is essentially 2,500 between three forces, the three services. And, you know, they're chipping away at it right now. You, F-15EX was, was on the board. Uh, uh, F-35 just got slaughtered in Congress, again, for a host of reasons. Not that it doesn't happen every year, but, you know, bad publicity, the purchase, uh, the budget for this year is a reduction in F-35 purchases. And when you start chipping away at those big numbers and those numbers have to happen sustained for a lot of years to right. populate the entire force when you change leadership who've been through the the rationale of why the force needed to be so big and you bring new leadership in in our services but also by the way in congress and the senate then you have different agendas if you're from seattle washington Mm, you're yeah. not a big supporter of the <laughs> F-35. You're all about Boeing. You're going to spend a lot of time in Congress and the Senate, as we have seen, you know, hammer an F-35, even though it has been astonishing successful and a smashing success everywhere it's been deployed. There isn't a single man or woman that has flown that jet that is ever going to back, go back to their legacy fighter. Not a single one in any country. Right of the nearly seventeen hundred people who have flown it, uh, for the almost eight hundred jets that are out there, but that's a lot of money to dedicate to a program to go a long time. So, do I think we're going to get those numbers? Boy, we're going to have to turn some things around, even after watching this year's pairing out down on the numbers. And so, what's the problem? That means that in the end, you don't have uh, an all fifth gen fleet potentially. So now you're back to mixing upgraded Vipers. Uh, F-15EX, if they get them in the big enough numbers, to then pair them with 
an aircraft, a fifth-gen platform that can communicate with them and be there, the quarterback, the eyes and ears of the force, keep them survivable, run the fight from the back. It's going to be interesting to see how it all pans out. It's an expensive program, like anything of that magnitude and that technological <clears throat> capability that brings to the table. But, um, yeah, it's it's interesting to watch. And it really is. I mean, it, It's expensive, right? But then, look, if you go back in history, just in fourth-gen assets, the Viper, the press was all over the Viper. We, we read the history books. Right. Just hammered. And, oh, by the way, at the beginning, you know, it was the lawn dart. The Eagle was expensive, didn't work in the beginning, and hammered. Um, C-17 was a lemon that sat on the ramp and didn't move in Charleston, South Carolina when it was first delivered because no one wanted to fly it. C-130J was going to be a six-month Lockheed development program, and then it was going to be fielded in a billion dollars later of Lockheed money. They finally fielded it to an airplane that no one can imagine doing without. The, hoop, the Hornet was, it was like the New York, it wasn't the New York Times, but a New York magazine at the time called it fat, slow, and, and <laughs> ugly, and without a mission back in 1983. And the Navy, Marine Corps, Canadians, and Aussies have loved the airplane for 40-something year, years. And so F-35 gets all the attention because it's the biggest budget program of all time. It, it, and, and it over-promised and under-delivered. It had a 10-year development test program that I was a part of. But it finished that program without ever losing a jet. Remarkable. Its loss rate is b far below any other airplane around there. And while it took a while to get going, it wasn't like the Raptor that spent seven their their, ma their mantra was seven years of seven days a week of the problems they had stabilizing the aircraft, the avionics, and getting them to function. Um, F-35 came out of that better than some of those other airplanes that we now can't imagine doing without. But because it's so scrutinized, you know, now everybody wants a piece of it. So we are going to have, we, we will never be on cruise control. And I say we, even though I don't fly the jet yeah. or I don't work for Lockheed, but it, it, there's no cruise control with F, F-35 hoping that it'll be built in those big numbers year after year. The, the services are going to have to come show with evidence why the aircraft is, you can't do without. And when you start talking about a near peer threat in Ukraine, Everybody should pay attention that you better have a VLO asset with the capabilities of and the lethality of F-35 or you're going to die overseas and, and no one could stand that answer. No, it's a different story when people start coming home with body bags. The F-35, I, I wonder the amount in you know, today's time. I know the, every plane went through that, right? It's expensive. It's not going to work. The F-35 yeah. seemed to take a couple of hits. And I think in today's age, there's so much media out there. There's so much social media out there. So it's different tactics and that information can spread like wildfire. Also, you can talk about adversaries who are manipulating, you know, news stories, et cetera. That's, that's, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. But the F-35, correct me if I'm wrong, was designed to basically, hey, once you have something that's flyable, you know, a little bit more, give it to us because we want to start figuring it out. We want to get it to the weapon school. We want to start developing the 3-1. dash We're going to start figuring out the tactics. We don't want an IOC jet right now. So the initial F-35 is rolling off the line. Essentially, the Air Force had them, Navy, Marine, like start figuring out how to use this as additional blocks came online. But I think that lent to some opportunities for, you know, hey, it's slow, it's fat, it can't keep up. It can't do that. Versus the Raptor, when it's rolling off the line, essentially it's an IOC jet ready to go. 
Uh, is that is that how the F thirty five program was designed? Do you think that played a factor into it at all? Yeah, the topic is the term is concurrency. We actually did it in Block sixty where we built the first three test airplanes that were F models, and then started building the other um, seventy seven aircraft. And there's some goods to that and bads. Goods are you get the aircraft off the line into the service and they can start learning about it. The bad is the jets are still growing and not mature yet. And so you risk fielding jets that don't have the full capability and you might not have everybody pleased. That certainly happened with F-35. If you done, and, and concurrency may never happen again, but if, if F-35 had gone the way of a legacy program and Raptor is not legacy, but that, that mindset of building the airplanes, developing them, maturing them, and then building the, the high rate mature product, I bet you you wouldn't have the same numbers on the ramp that you do now. And then you would have, you know, in the dark days of F-35, you could have been canceled because you didn't have enough out there on the ramp. In the end, it, it's earned its right. The Marine Corps never, could never imagine going back to what they had and not having an F-35. The Air Force loves the jet and the Navy has slowly come around to it. <laughs> um, so I, I think concurrency will, guys will write staff papers and PhDs on it for yeah. years, whether it was worth it or not. F-35 is not an example that will ever be repeated in history. I, because of my example in Block 60, I am a believer in what concurrency, the positives of what concurrency is. I have lived on the other side of that fence where other conditions have essentially stalled the program and effectively killed its potential. That happened in Eurofighter and for the Dassault-built Rafale. Both of those airplanes were uh, first flew 1986, 1987, Cold War airplanes of the Euro Canard design. And they were going to be in big numbers. But then the Cold War ended in the, in the early 1990s and the government stopped <laughs> believing war was ever going to happen and that lost the momentum. So even though there were prototypes out there, the production airplanes didn't really happen and the program didn't get going for years and years afterwards. And that had nothing to do with the design and manufacturing and testing of an airplane. It had to do with the external influences. If you if you'd done that with F thirty five, you you potentially in a different time frame would have had a real risk of something changing in the world, and that aircraft would have ended up in small numbers, been canceled early, and we would be flying upgraded Vipers and and F fifteen EXs as our frontline fighters. So, uh, concurrency, good and bad. I just think um, it there's a lot of positives to the end result in our program a lot there i think we just scratched the surface <laughs> on the uh the f-35 but i would like to pivot a little bit uh talked talk about a few more things again we could go on and on especially with your background but i want to i want to jump to ag cas because this is something i would say near and dear to my heart it is something that catches a lot of attention and to this day has saved a lot of lives and then there are lives lost by not fielding this technology so you're part of the initial development of AGCAS. My squadron, when I showed up to the F-16, we deployed about six months after I got there. We were the first two squadrons to get it. We went to yep. uh, the Middle East, go fly around Jordan and Syria. Our sister squadron went over to Afghanistan. Both our squadrons had AGCAS. And I think our squadron had the first credited save uh, for our Air Force with that. Can you talk to me a little bit about the, the development of AGCAS, what it is, and then we'll just take it from there. So, and, and let's, let's uh, remind everybody, because hopefully they listened to your very compelling story about pyro and, and, and just hitting the, a, a human hitting the ground that's close to us. And, and 
and pyro had its gear down. It's not the same thing. It, right. it, auto GCAS wouldn't have worked that, but it's a notion of we've killed so many guys in everybody's lifetime and everybody's career. They know someone that died hitting the ground. CFIT controlled flight into terrain is an indiscriminate killer. It kills young and old. It kills experienced pilots and inexperienced. It kills low time guys in the jet and high time guys yep. day and night. A spatial D, it's different types of disorientation. It's G-lock, it's you know flying into the ground because you're too low, but all of those factors, and we've analyzed every accident in the United States Air Force, and we will tell you that you know system, the, the manual systems are working and guys still hit the ground for a host of reasons. Uh, let's, let's get to the punchline right now. 12 Viper pilots, and 11 Vipers have been saved. Everybody do the math of that, right? A two-seat yeah. Viper where both guys are incapacitated. Uh, a uh, June 2020 save of a Raptor in Alaska that's been accredited. And we believe an F-35 save already, maybe more. Um, so this system is saving lives. It, I, I, we, care, we don't really care about the whole cost of a, of a fighter jet. We care about the human in the jet. It takes three years to build a fighter jet. It takes 26 years to build a fighter pilot. I can build another jet. I can't replace my friends. And I'm gonna keep going on anecdotes because it's dear, near and dear to my heart. I'm on the, I was on the first Hornet class in Canada. Uh, first course, right? So first operational squadron. I'm a, I'm a pipeliner. I'm, I think I was still a lieutenant. Two months in, the most talented guy on this course, patchware, two kids at home, um, doing a high to low intercept on a thousand foot T-33 target in the range of Cold Lake, Alberta, comes in and out of cloud, head buried in, trying to solve the radar problem and drills himself into the tundra going 700 knots. Two months in, most talented guy. Five minutes earlier, doing the same task in the range of Cold Lake, a major uh, experienced guy with the same task, head buried in the cockpit, trying to solve the problem with clouds, comes out of the clouds, and in his case, and it's a, such a compelling HUD video, you hear a gasp, he takes two hands, he buries the stick, and this is before the Hornet had a 7.5G limiter. He pulls 11.2G, misses the ground by 192 feet, do that math, and, and almost dies. And unfortunately, five minutes later, in a different part of the range, guy dies. Jeez. We killed guys two months into my, let's call it, operational uh, life. And, and seven of 16 fatalities, just in the CF-18 fleet could have been saved by auto GCAS. So that's, that, those are the stats. They're compelling, they're amazing. We all know someone. Auto ground collision avoidance really comes back to the 90s and it was a research program. It, really the technology starts with a, a combined program with the Swedish Air Force to prevent jets from hitting the ground. They had a system that kind of worked. It would look ahead, see if the ground was going to, uh, terrain was, impact was going to happen and would fly an aircraft away from the ground. It was pretty successful in the F-16. But back then in the 90s, and you'll remember this, we had INSs that yep. drifted at a mile per hour when you flew. So you're not, you don't know exactly where you are over the land. And our terrain database knowledge, we used to call it DTED, Digital Terrain Elevation Data. We thought it, we had, as Americans, we had, level one, level two, super sophisticated. As it turns out later on, and the team I was on, we found that that was a complete BS. And none of it was very accurate, ultimately. Uh, all of that leads to a team that starts in 2006. 
It's called the Automatic Collision Avoidance Technology Team, if you will, ACAT. And it was Lockheed Skunk Works, Air Force Research Labs, AFRL. It was a NASA Dryden Flight Research Facility, so NASA Edwards, now called NASA Armstrong. And it was obviously the US Air Force. We took a two-seat F-16D that was given to us by Shaw, cleaned up the jet, and we used it as our test pad. And we matured the technologies that had been worked on research programs before that. So not an INS anymore. We got an Aggie for the non-aviators. It's an INS embedded with a, a, with a GPS. And so the GPS keeps everything remarkably accurate in terms of positioning. We learned about terrain data from uh, the space shuttle STS-99. Uh, they did a mission called the SR, the data is called SRTM, Shuttle Radar Topography Mission, where they mapped 80% of the Earth's surface from 60 north down to 56 south with astonishing, astonishing accuracy that like flawless, forget the detailed stuff we talked about before, all of a sudden we had mapping of that part of the year, 80% of the Earth that was astonishing. We learned about predicting how the aircraft would see the train and then what it would do, its fly up model. And then we linked that to the flight control system. And we came up with the 80, the 98% solution. And in a two year period, it was remarkably accurate. I could fly the fans that look at online, know about Star Wars Canyon and, and they see F-35s flying through there all the time. Well, that's part of a low level route that uh, is around, uh, basically it's Edwards up to around China Lake, next to Death Valley, into the, oh, the Owens Valley, into the Sierra Nevadas and back around and it's clockwise one day, counterclockwise the other. Uh, and it turns out to be a remarkable place, remarkable place to test this kind of capability because the rocks are really unique. The walls are really unique of what you would face. And we convinced ourselves that we had a nearly flawless system. And I think my last flight was 2011 in the jet. Um, I thought that we was going to go immediately into the Viper it instead went to testing at Edwards in 2014. It was fielded. And it, oh, by the way, in that three-year period from when I finished and it was fielded, we killed a couple guys. So I, I, that's the, what is it? What is it? It's, it's um, position of where you are, GPS, terrain data, Google Earth, a predictor of when you're going to hit the ground and then take control of the flight controls and then fly you away and then give you back control of the airplane when you're finished. That's what it all does. There, there was a different program. We put it into the Block 60 airplane. I, I call it the 80% solution. It didn't have the same fly-up model. It didn't have the same terrain data, but we put it into Block 60 at Lockheed for the UAE um, in that program without waiting for ACAT to be happened. So we had fielded something out of Lockheed, but really ACAT was it. It goes into the Viper. You flew it. Uh, we have saves. Now we're starting to save people. And, and I used to brief, when I briefed it, I used to, show a video of a viper in the middle east taking off and in a minute and a half later he dies you know it was a 4500 yep. hour guy it's just so disheartening and you know that everything in the jet's working but he's fighting a million things in his head in the in the jet and and it this technology would have saved him um it gets to f-35 i i rejoin uh, i joined f-35 full-time after it and the answer is oh we can't get it into the jet we don't have the throughput in our mission computer capability to put it. And we're going to have to wait till 2026 uh, 20, until Tech Refresh 3 before we could do this. And, and my head explodes. And a bunch of us just realized this cannot happen. And fortunately, some cool heads prevailed at Lockheed Martin and within the program and said, look, 
to the skunk work guys who had worked on our system and said, look, you just do a science project here. Is there some way you can make this happen? And they went and found that in fact they could, the throughput would be, would work, it would work in F35 uh, by the way they, they mechanized it. And then it got front loaded in F35 and um, we tested it as a manual system and then automated it through uh, flight controls. It's a, it's a fused airplane. It's not a federated system. Uh, people that don't know federated means I got a radar box. I got a flight control box. I got a mission computer and I just need to make them talk separately and I can make a system work in an F-22 or an F-35. Everything talks. It's a big octopus network. And so it's a lot more complex to design and make happen. But we got into F-35. We believe there's been saves out there. We've certainly seen it effective and, and we created um, believers. Um, one of the cool fallouts of this is I flew with uh, um, USAF, uh, sorry, a Marine Corps major, um, Latch Lip Lippert, and he was at Pax River with me as a good Marine test pilot. And he was doing the beginning of this testing when it was a manual system. And he wrote a staff paper to his Marine Corps headquarters guys and said, look, you know, we have to do something about this. The Navy didn't really want auto GCAS. They didn't care. Boeing wasn't putting much effort into it. Uh, there was no real incentive. And he said, look, we can't, we can't stand the answer here. And that staff paper plus some great work by Marine aviators got it pushed into the Hornet world. And ultimately the Navy relented and it, a system, a version of this philosophy is uh, being tested and fielded soon in legacy Marine Corps Hornets and Super Hornets. And so we, we pushed out into other fleets. Now, you know the video of the C-17 accident in Eilson where yep. talk about bad air show discipline. It, why it's not in a C-130J, why it's not in a C-17 yet, I don't know. But ultimately, this technology will end up in every commercial airplane out there, every corporate jet out there, private planes, and every military aircraft that flies. Um, it is that technology is won every award that matters, including the 2018 Collier Trophy, which is essentially the highest award in aviation, because it is the most important contribution to flight safety in 50 years. Absolutely. Because we're, we're not going to kill our guys, guys and gals anymore flying into the ground. So that's a, that's a, take a deep breath. That's a long explanation of what this technology is all about. I just, I can't, I can't say enough how amazing the teams were. They just would not relent until we got this into all the fleets that are out there because we, we all have buds that we buried. You know, the aspect of this too is you said, hey, I thought I was going to go into the Viper right away. I know it ultimately comes down to resources. Resources are always limited. And I, I, I heard this conversation come up um, and I know it happens across every service. If you're going to buy new widget X that can shoot further, or blow up bigger, that is going to get the funding more often than not. I think it's starting to change now, especially you know once AGCast got in there and it's getting saves, there's option. Because I've shared the video. There's two B-course videos. I did a breakdown of a GCAS save out on the B-course. Um, that's up on YouTube. And I shared that, and I have a lot of Hornet buddies, and it was actually the week of Tailhook, and they all messaged. I had like three or four guys message me, and they had brought this up at tailhook to leadership and the response was from this one person right so it's not the whole navy whatever this this one you know 
flag officer, it wasn't a priority, right? Because of resources, resources would be allocating in other places. Um, but as you said, like we, everyone who is in the fast jet business has lost friends from hitting the ground at some point in their career. And this stuff is incredible technology. And it, it, was, was, a, it was a long, long battle to convince people. Cause you said, look, I'm going to give you a better weapon. I'm going to give you a bigger bullet. I'm going to give you a much better missile, or I'm going to dedicate those funds to some, it's like a a better seatbelt and and guys didn't understand and and leaders didn't understand. And so it became a conversation about dollars. We're going to save you billions and billions of dollars in hull frames by doing this. And the stats are so compelling, right? Because you go back 20, 30 years of all the jets that have lost. And that really became it. I, I will say, so you're talking about that video out of Tucson, right? The young yep. guy, Dutchman, I think. I think so, yeah. Um, so we, we've, we've completed the program. We'd flown a guy named Guy North, who is a Aviation Week uh, uh, editor, wonderful man who just loves airplanes, loves aviation. And we flew him in the backseat of this F-16D out at Edwards. And Guy North understood and he wrote about the program. But then he... He, when that video came out, I credit him. I don't know if it's exactly accurate, but I say that when, once that video was posted by Aviation Week and sent out in the real world and everyone saw that this guy's about to die and this flight lead screaming at him and AG cast takes over, all of a sudden people became converts and they go, holy Moses, this, this stuff's for real. And it wasn't that the technology hadn't worked from the beginning. It's that we couldn't, we couldn't win the argument that you've just explained. You know, it was, it was bullets and beans right. versus this flight safety thing. Now you go, are you, like, you'd it, think about a senior leader that would turn this down now. I would make sure they that the widow of the next guy killed knew that guy's name and knew right. his home address, and I'd march that lady right to the door to say, this man's responsible for your your son or your husband's death. It's almost that bad. And And last thing I'll say is so many of the people that I worked with and knew dedicated in some case decades to this technology or or a decade of work briefing in congress and briefing the halls of acc and and going to navair and going overseas and telling so many people in so many different forums about it until eventually it caught on and if they had not been so dedicated and they're from the air force research labs they're from acc they're from lockheed skunk works even lockheed leadership did not own, they decided not to own the intellectual property of Auto GCAS because they knew how important this was to saving the lives of, of our aviators. All of those collective folks are responsible ultimately for the success of it being fielded. And now we're saving lives. And, you know, in the, uh, by the way, in T7, it's not in the, in the first tranche for T7. Yeah, we're going to build a, a magnificent new trainer and we're not putting Auto GCAS in in the beginning. And I think that's borders on. Mm, yeah. technically criminal or some word that I'm probably not allowed to say. Well, especially nowadays, right? I, I'm not an engineer, but the technology now exists. And at that level, it almost should be plug and play. Cause essentially the upgrade yeah. for us was plug and play. It happened on the ramp. It happened at home station. It relatively yeah. simple. So if you're building a jet a from, software load, yeah, just build it from the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah it's to me, it, it's, it's a no brainer. It saves lives. Yep. And the 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 interesting part being the demo guy, so there's a show mode in it, which uh, yeah, yeah, I know it was. It, there's several different modes. The show mode was there. I would have a lot of erroneous fly ups, but I actually was fortunate enough to go out to Lockheed 
And, you know, once it had been in fielded in the jet, because my boss at one point is like, it, it goes back to it. Hey, I'm counting on you not killing yourself because we don't have, I can't allocate resources to make sure we get a show mode that works for one, one guy. So I copy that, but I was fortunate to go out to Lockheed and I know at the time they were working on, Hey, how can we make show mo- mode a little bit more accurate where you're going to have less erroneous flyups, yeah. which like, I think it included like fuel flow, maybe a seven G assumption versus a five G pull things of that nature, which see like seeing the team, um, you know, just my brief visit out there and running through the sim and running through the profile was is, was pretty cool. And again, I know that's just scratching scratching the surface on you know years and years of work, thousands and thousands of man hours, you know, uh, blood, sweat, and tears trying to make that happen. So it's pretty yeah. pretty awesome to see it come to life. Um, as we kind of wrap up here, I I have another Patreon supporter, Cranky, who actually was a guest on the episode. It sounds like you yeah, guys flew yeah, together yeah. Uh, at Edwards, and it sounded like he chased you on a few sorties where you're testing thrust vectoring in the F-16. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because obviously as a Viper guy, that sounds pretty appealing. It's one of the stories of better uh, for my participation in F-16 multi-axis thrust vectoring, uh, where uh, I just outlived everybody else. And so at some point I'm at Edwards uh, as a test pilot, as the Canadian go figure. And I got to be part of this (laughs) program. So it was remarkable. It's the early nineties where thrust vectoring and the, and, and the idea of what you could do with a jet that could fly into post-stall and be totally controllable really could change what air combat was going to be. And so there were really three programs running it. Uh, all, as it turns out, all, they flew all at the same time. Uh, the NASA had a black and white unique Hornet with thrust vectoring paddles on the back of each engine, three big paddles on the back of each engine. They took the AB off and put paddles on. Uh, really heavy system. Uh, ballast in the f- nose of the airplane, but it was there to start exploring what it was like to fly beyond 35 alpha into the 45 alpha 50 region, maybe 70. Another NASA program combined with a German German support was the X-31. And it was two, let's call them A4 sized airplanes with canards with thrust vectoring paddles on the back of a GE-404. Okay. And that was that program was meant really to go after dogfighting and close in combat and to see what thrust vectoring could do. And they were going to do Cobras and they were going to do a thing called the J-turn, which is basically up with a Cobra, rudder over, and then fly away and be a quicker way to, to complete a three, uh, 180. But somewhere along the way, our engine manufacturers, in this case, General Electric, came up with a plan and said, look, we, we can make a, a regular nozzle move and and articulate and we can put it in a viper and fly at 70 alpha and and do astonishing things and so general electric took an f uh f110 a ge f110 put an axisymmetric exhaust nozzle a a, a, axisymmetric vectored exhaust nozzle (laughs) in onto the platform that was going to ultimately be the f-16 variable in flight stability aircraft and we called it uh, F-16 multi-axis thrust vectoring. And now you're all of a sudden with very little ultimately mods to an airplane, uh, a couple hundred pounds in the back to put a GE engine in there, some ballast in the front really as much uh, because it was a test airplane, put a spin chute on the back because it was still a test platform and go out and let's go see what you could do in a, in a, in a Viper. And, 
and it was remarkable. It was my first flight <laughs> in F-16 MATV was 70 Alpha. Jeez. All of a sudden, you know, you, you're a you, you're a Viper guy. I'm a Viper guy to this point. I'm I'm at 25 Alpha, racing around the <laughs> raging around the corner, pinned to the back of the seat at 9G. You know, a Hornet guy can pull to 35, 45, and sort of beat me inside the, in the turn circle. Sort of. He's done. And all of a sudden, we're at 70 Alpha, and we're completely, totally controlled. We're doing Cobras left, right, and center. We're doing pedal turns. We're spiraling. I'm spiraling around over the desert of Edwards. I stop at a point in the ground. I go the other way. Stop at a point. Completely com controllable uh, throughout. And then fly away every time. We're doing jade turns and cobras and pedal turns, and it was absolutely stunning and remarkable. Um, BFM and just slaughtering guys <laughs> right. who were dumb enough to get slow with us. And and, and a couple of limitations. We had to have the spin shoot on the whole time because we wanted to expedite the program and not get bogged down in the safety clearances. And so we ended up staying up much higher than we would have loved to have fought. I'd love to have fought down at 10,000 feet right. and you know been in a place where a Viper is just King Kong, but we're up at 20,000 feet or 15,000 feet doing it. We cleared in a remarkably short period of time, cleared out the envelope for MATV and then brought in some Air Force pilots to do some exploitation with it. So if I'm talking about early 90s, I'm also talking about the time where we, as Americans, are struggling with a high-op foresight missile and a helmet to control it, right? We know that our adversaries have something that works, and we're, we're, we're inching towards AIM-9X. And then there's a, there's a conversation that says, do I want thrust vectoring, or do I just want a helmet that I can look off 90 to 120 degrees and shoot a missile off, off my shoulder? And oh, that really was a competition in terms of philosophy that was fighting itself throughout this whole thing. But it was a pretty heady day to be a thrust vectoring guy at Edwards. And we have three different programs happening. So at, even at NASA, they have two programs that are separate. There's the F-18 Harb, there's X-31. They're both cool looking airplanes. We're the F-16 guys, but none of us are talking. And at the Society of Experimental Test Pilots Symposium, and I'm guessing that year it was probably the fall of 1992, uh, we're all the guys that are flying it and we're all having beers together at a pool party at the Beverly Hilton back in the day. And we all went, huddled in a corner and said, what the hell are we doing? Like, why aren't we flying together? Like, why aren't we all helping this technology develop it? And so over a bunch of bass ales, we brought all three <laughs> programs together. And I got to fly the F-18 Harv, because uh, I was a Hornet guy, it was easy transition for me. I uh, flew a Hornet BFM against the X-31. Um, the two NASA primary pilots got to fly in F-16 MATV and see what our craft was like. And we swapped programs so that we could be exposed to each other and then talk collectively about what thrust vectoring was going to do. It's amazingly cool to look at BFM in a jet that can go to 70 Alpha, like we know Raptor now does. But what was really interesting and compelling was we were going to save aircraft losses from out of control. If you went back and look at F-14 stats, Eagle stats, Hornet stats of loss of control because flight control surfaces fail because of hydraulic failures, all of a sudden the numbers are really, really compelling like because you've lost control power. But now I've got, I have, I have a, what? So what's a, what's a, a G110 put out? 27,000 pounds yeah. of thrust? Is it okay? Yeah. Now I have a pretty powerful effector back there 
to keep my aircraft out of control when I lose control surfaces or I have major failures back there. I have a hydraulic, fa hydraulic failure that fails at half my flight controls. Or I'm a, I'm a Tomcat and I lose an engine. Now I have a real controllability problem, but I got a pretty powerful <laughs> right. effector. It didn't work at high speed, so in MATV it kicked in below 300 knots. But all of a sudden, if you were in that mindset and you change from fighting a Viper mentality to a rate fight, or it's not a rate fight, to, to position fight yeah. like in a Hornet, oh my God, you're at 70 Alpha and I'm pointing at some guy, I'm gunning him, doing a pedal turn around the corner. And you're just thinking, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. It was really astonishing, it was magnificent. And now, why didn't we, why didn't we mechanize it? Yeah. Why didn't we put it in a Viper? G promised it would be a, a million dollars mod. That's probably a lie, but it was probably you know a couple Start. million dollars to put it in the Viper fleet, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, we're not pinned at twenty-five alpha anymore. We're King Kong with really very little penalty. And ultimately, uh, our guys went up to General McPeak, uh, who was head of the Air Force at the time, gave a great presentation, and essentially, I paraphrase because I wasn't in the room, but he basically said. Uh, thanks guys, but we're not going to buy it. It's it's early, it's mid 90s now, 93, 94, F-22, uh, YF-22's happened, it's crashed, F-22's starting. And if you showed up with a fleet of Vipers that could fly at 70 Alpha, remember, think about the mindset of a, of a politician, not as yeah. a, a, a fighter pilot, then you would say, well, I don't need the kinematics of your Raptor. I can I can go 70 Alpha in a, in a Viper now. And what they wouldn't have known is that the keys to Raptor's success and dominance is stealth and sensor fusion, not super cruise and not thrust vectoring to 70 alpha, but, but to the layman, to the people that only understand kinematics, it would have been very compelling to have easily modified Vipers with thrust vectoring in there. And you probably wouldn't have need Vipers. And one of the key reasons, I'll finish by saying one of the key reasons I was poached to come to uh, Eurofighter was because of thrust vectoring. Uh, Eurofighter uh, is not an aggressive flying airplane. It's uh, it, it's like driving a Bentley down the highway. It's not a it's not a very nimble, aggressive airplane, and has real flight control problems. Uh, a not a non recoverable uh, spin mode that uh, terrified the designers. But if you put thrust vectoring on it, and I I simmed the prototype designs. All of a sudden, you have an airplane that would be flying at seventy alpha, and it would have been right. like impressive, King Kong impressive. And I was brought to go do that in thrust vectoring, and obviously, in the end, it was killed and never happened. It was a great, magnificent time. I, I said I'd say the last word, but I'll give you one more word because it applies to Auto GCast. It was astonishing, astonishing, in its success in technology, and it failed in part because we failed to communicate the benefits to all the stakeholders who could have made a decision to support it. When we jump ahead 20 something years and get into auto GCAS, we were never going to make that mistake again. And we over communicated uh, auto, auto GCAS because we never wanted that technology to be shelved and not be fielded. And it's, it's one of the positive lessons I took from thrust vectoring, which had an amazing success, but never went anywhere. That's a really good point because it's so easy that could happen. And I think you also brought up a good point, the fact that how easily these things can get killed. I saw, I think we were talking about beforehand too, is, you know, during my time, you know, the capes upgrading the Viper with an Ace radar integrated defensive suite, that was on the table. It got killed, uh, you know, up in the hill, politics got involved. But I think, you know, it, it 
in, in all reality is probably a little bit more, but you know, roughly a million dollars per jet, incredible upgrade, and basically is going to happen on the ramp. So minimal downtime for the jet, a no-brainer, right, for the backbone of your fighting force. Why would you not do it? Uh, but one of the, the terms that was taboo to say was sensor fusion, right? That, that belonged to the fifth gen world, but that's what really it would give you in the Viper, having your radar, having your, uh, you know, EA pod talking, having, you know, HTS, everything talking amongst one itself versus managing all these separate systems that some talk, some don't have to interpolate. Um, again, it goes back just like the EA, when you talk about offensive or defensive jamming in the Viper, I just like go ahead and chalk that, throw that one right away. Yeah, you might as well be defensive because pulling, you know, to the beam as you're looking down, trying to punch whatever program you need to select. <laughs> that's right. That's the and it's the control, you know, little nugget down here that um, is interchangeable. And so you're like, I don't know what program I'm hitting down here. Like so uh silliness. So true. But uh, it is interesting yeah. to see how all that all that stuff comes comes into play and a factor. But Billy, before we kind of wrap up here, I always like, like to ask my guests, you know, if they found, you know, 15, 16 year old Billy walking down the street, is there any advice you would give him, tell him to do or don't do? That's the toughest. I knew this was coming. Yeah. Thing to, me to think ahead of time to be reflective of things, but I'll give you some philosophy that, uh, that I've learned and I flew fighters for 40 years. So I, I learned some things along the way. Um, I would tell a younger me and I would tell, I tell my boys, um, believe in yourself. And I learned to be a disciple of the power of positive thinking uh, in college, but it took me a while to cement that in, in, in this world as a fighter pilot and, 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 and through life of it is, is, it's just all in our heads. And what we achieve is, is almost exclusively in our minds and that's the success and I certainly attribute. So I wish I'd known that early in life. But the other thing I say and, and, um, is enjoy the ride. Um, there is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There is no pot of gold at the end of all this that will tell you that your life was successful. Uh, I had the great fortune in, in his latter years to on occasion be around Neil Armstrong, first man to walk on the moon, He's Christopher Columbus. He's Marco Polo. Yeah. And he is the most humble human that anyone ever came in contact with. And he never, essentially ever, at least in my presence, or people I knew, spoke of walking on the moon and what he'd accomplished. This is a man who had done what all humanity would have thought was the greatest feat of all time. And he had nothing but humility. And it taught me first, so being around a man that humble, then being around so many other people in, in my personal life and professional life who had done amazing things and were the most miserable humans ever because they never could appreciate what they'd had the great fortune to be a part of. There's no amazing amount of money you're ever going to make. There's no amazing feat you're ever going to do. But if you enjoy the ride, if you enjoy the journey, it's about the journey, not the destination, you will find that life Will, could never have been more fulfilling. And, and I have had the great fortune uh, as a demo pilot early on, as a test pilot at Edwards, as a squadron commander going to war uh, in the heydays of F-35, Paris Air Show, I have learned that those highlights of part of a great life is, um, is really a lesson I wish I had appreciated with a little more wisdom and calm 
when I was a youngin, instead of being some grossly impatient, you know, hair on fire, fire pilot and right. pilot like I was for so long. So those are my two things. Uh, it's the mindset of the power of positive thinking. And it is, it's the journey, not the destination. Billy, it's a great way to end the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time. You know, we scratched the surface on 40 years in the fast jet business in about an hour and a half. So I think we skipped a few things. I'll have to have you come back on. We can tell tell a few more stories, hear a few more for sure. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. It was fun to talk and, and hear a lot of stuff that's near and dear to my heart and very interesting. So thanks again. Rain, I, I love your show. So I, it was really a privilege to have the chance to chat with you. Thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed the talk. Absolutely. Thanks, Billy.